Voices Radio. Welcome to the next instalment of Slowly Radio. My name is Josh. I'm the founder of Slowly by Consensus, a sustainable fashion brand. This month, I'm joined by Shana Ratna, community activist, author, researcher, and trainer specializing in rural economic and community development. We discuss in depth her book, Wealth Creation, a new framework for rural economic and community development. We also have a mix curated by me and DJ Ratsy in the second half of the show. I hope you enjoy. Slow. My name is Shana Ratner, and I'm uh, the the mostly retired at this point principal of Yellowwood Associates, which was a consulting firm in Vermont that specialized in rural economic and community development for about 35 years. Um, I was also the thought leader for a Ford Foundation sponsored project on wealth creation, and that was the, the genesis of the book that we're going to be talking about. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. So. Um... Just to give a little bit of context to this, um, I came across your book, um, Wealth Creation, uh, A New Framework for Law and Community Development, um, which I thought was absolutely fascinating because I have been looking for some text and some literature um, on, on the kind of very subject of building wealth in communities or in small groups. And to be honest, there wasn't a lot out there. Um, and your books was one of the kind of the only books that, that, that popped up. So um, uh, I purchased it kind of straight away. And I was kind of reading it through the lens of, um, well, as you know, I'm a sustainable business owner. So looking at it through the lens of sustainability and um, just how small groups more so um, could start to think about wealth and, and, and building wealth. Um, and then also the rural um, element appealed to me as well because I've, I've lived in uh, kind of rural South England um, for a point of my life. So I know what those kind of communities look like and how they're connected or disconnected from more urban areas. And I've lived in, um, uh, London as well, the capital city, so um, I also know what those communities, a little bit about what those communities are like and, 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 and um, how they're connected or not connected as well. Um, so I thought this book was definitely extremely needed, so um, I just kind of want to dive into some of the, the topics you laid out and um, uh, some of the things you've expressed, so um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself personally and um, how you came to work in community development? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in suburban Washington, D.C. 
but I grew up riding horses, so I spent a good deal of time in rural areas around Washington. Um, and I learned to drive a tractor, and I learned to make hay, and I learned to do all those, all those things. Um, and then as an adult, I've lived in a number of urban places, and I've also uh, lived now for quite a number of years in rural Vermont. So I've, like you, I've had a, a, mixed, a mixed experience. Um, when I was growing up, I had some relatives who were involved in international development. And so from a pretty young age, I was aware that there was such a field and it intrigued me. Um, and uh, my father was a labor lawyer who represented unions. So I also grew up with a strong sense of justice and injustice and equity and inequity and all of that. And so um, when I was, let's see, how old was I? I was about 20, I took myself to Africa. Um, I went to Mali by myself. I wasn't with Peace Corps or with anybody. It was just me. And, and I went because I wanted to understand the difference between wealth and poverty. And I felt as though having grown up in the ostensibly wealthiest country in the world, or at least one of them, the only possible way to understand that, to actually viscerally understand that, was to go to one of the poorest countries in the world. And Mali certainly qualified as one of the poorest countries. And um, I also felt as though the activity of international development was draining a lot of the best and brightest and most idealistic folks from the US, putting them through where they had no um, accountability really to anyone, letting them screw up, <laughs> letting them get used to a lifestyle with cooks and drivers and, you know, like that. Um, and then by the time they got back to the United States, they were no longer the same people. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I just flat out didn't. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go back to the United States. I'm going to do rural development in the United States. And when and if I ever know enough to have it be of value to anybody anywhere else, that would be amazing but I'm not going to do my learning on somebody else's territory where I can't be held accountable. Yeah. Um, that just seems not morally okay with me. So, so that's what I did. So I came back to the U S and, um, I worked for a number of years as a consultant. And then I finally went to grad school at Cornell and I studied agricultural economics, which was essentially the closest you could come to applied economics in those days and uh, did my thesis work in the Adirondacks in New York on the informal economy versus on the informal economy as part of their livelihood strategies. And that was really, really uh, led to a lot of insights on my part about what people actually do and who does it. And one of the things I discovered that was kind of counterintuitive is that the more resourced you were, the better you could utilize the informal economy. And the less resourced you were, the less well you could. One might have thought it would be the other route, that if you were not well resourced, you'd have more drive to engage in the informal economy. But actually, I'll give you a small example and move on. But actually, for example, if you had the money for a rototiller, you could have a much bigger garden right. that made up a much bigger proportion of your diet than if you couldn't afford a rototiller or if you couldn't afford someone to come and rototill for you, right? So lots of examples like that that became very, very interesting to me to, to sort of be aware of in terms of how our economy actually works, not how we might imagine that it, that it works. Um, 
So yeah, so I did that work at Cornell, and then I came to Vermont and I started Yellowwood Associates. And about oh, I don't know, ten years before I knew what we were, what our market was, because we were doing lots of individual projects, and probably another fifteen years after that, before I had the opportunity to start to look more broadly at the field, because you know, as a consultant, you're doing this project and then that project and then that project. You don't necessarily get the chance to step back and really take a broad look. But the first work that I did was with the Northern Forest Center, and that was on wealth creation, and that got me started thinking about different forms of wealth, reading about genuine wealth and inclusive wealth, and all kinds of different ways that people have tried to think about about wealth and wealth in the context of development. And then a few years after that, I was invited into this into this board project. So that's kind of the evolution of it. Wow, yeah, it's completely yeah, that's completely fascinating. And could you just touch on a, a bit more about the um, kind of informal um, that, that informal economic model you mentioned, the uh, informal economy? Um, what what does that mean? So what I was looking at were um, all all things that were legal, mm-hmm. but not market based, right? So I wasn't looking at drug running, and I wasn't looking at you know any of the things that people could do outside the the legal economy. What I was looking at is you know how are people utilizing natural resources, specifically wild um, products, forested products, wildlife, um, you know anything you can grow. Anything you can fish for, mm-hmm. um, you know, anything you can do with water. Um, how are those things supplementing people's livelihoods? And it turns out that 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 kind of economic activity was the third most of livelihood after earned income and social security transfer payments. Wow! So and it wasn't that far down the list, right? So wow. what I would do is go in. What I did actually is go around and survey households, one household at a time, on a, in a random pattern. And ask them a whole series of questions about what they did and how much of it they did, and and then I was able to impute economic value. So, for example, if they kill deer, I didn't value the venison at the value that you would pay for venison at a restaurant in New York City. I valued the venison at what you would pay for fatty ground beef at the store, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it was a, it was a protein substitute for that. So I was pretty conservative in how I you know how I valued stuff, mm. um, and still in all. It turned out it was a very piece wow. of people's actual. So, yeah. so, so you found and it's it was... not, of course, something we measures or anybody pays attention to. And it was important because the reason I did the work is because the Adirondack Park is a regulated entity. Yeah. And uh, since people, you can't regulate to support something you don't know exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to bring visibility and awareness. To the regulators of what was actually going on in the park, yeah. Um, so that they would not pass regulations that would make it impossible for people to do the things that they were doing to survive. Yeah, hundred percent. If that made up a third of their kind of uh, income in a way, whether that be dietary or monetary, then that's yeah, that's a phenomenal amount. And uh, like you said, you don't want it to. Yeah, stop. I mean, it wasn't. It was. To be clear, it wasn't a third of their income, but it was collectively the third most important source of right. income. 
Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, it was still it was still um, a significant chunk. Yeah. And of course, it varied by family, right? For some families, it was a very significant part. For other families, it was you know not a significant part. But this was you know on average across the the random sample that I that I looked at. Wow. And it, yeah, it was quite it was quite interesting. Does that play into a little bit? Uh, in one of the chapters in your book, you mentioned. Um, something called positive deviation. Is that, does that play into that at all? Um. Um, you know, I didn't. I wasn't aware deviance. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't aware of that concept at the time. But um, and I'm question because I would never. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Yeah. But I expect yes that if you that if I had if I went back to that data set, yeah. I would find that. For a certain tier of households, there were some that were, you know, at a certain at a certain threshold of resource availability. There were some that were doing much more than others. Right, right, right. And it and they would have been the positive deviance in that, you know, in those situations. Yeah. Yeah, just kind of finding a way to look at what's around them in a different way, um, and make use of it. Um, and then, so one of the lines in the book that really struck me was just kind of your definition of. Um, poverty, which was that poverty is isolation. And um, when I kind of sat and thought about that kind of in context with all of the the other um, uh, forms of wealth that you mentioned, not just financial, that kind of really hit home and seemed to make sense. Um, can you just dive into that, uh, unpack that a little bit, what, what you meant by that? Sure, sure. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the reason that the, that the things that we're doing today to try to make the world a better place aren't working and haven't worked for the last, you know, 50 plus years um, is because we're not thinking about them the right way. We don't understand what they really are. And um, one of the, the, the experiences I had decades ago that really kind of got me going down this road was I was working with a group of people in Maine whose whole livelihood, whose whole lives, whose whole careers have been about doing anti-poverty work. And we talked about, well, what, you know, what is poverty? Let's define poverty, what is it? And we came up with lots and lots of language to define poverty and nowhere in on the lists and lists of words we came up with was income. It didn't, it, it, it never showed up. And I pointed that out to them and they went, yeah, well, there's a reason for that because income and poverty are not the same thing. You can have income and still be poor, and you can not have income and not be poor. Thank you very much. Um, so I said, huh, but so how does that square with the fact that every single program we have, at least in the United States, defines poverty based on income and targets resources based on income? And they said, well, that's the reason it's all screwed up. That's the reason it's not working, because we don't understand what poverty is. Yeah. And I was like, uh-huh, that is a problem. That's a rather huge problem that nobody had was talking about, right? And so it became clear to me as I looked at it more and thought about it more that really poverty is not a factor of income as we've been led to believe. It's a factor of isolation. Mm -hmm. If you don't have access to these various forms of wealth, which I'm sure I'm assuming we're going to define and talk about a little bit in a minute, then you're going to be poor because you're cut off. And essentially what we've managed to do is take whole swaths of people, whether they're you know in urban areas or rural areas or in suburban areas, it doesn't really matter, and cut them off from the mainstream economy, cut them off from society, cut them off from social connection, cut them off from access to resources, 
Um, and when you're cut off, you're by definition poor. The things that most people want in the world are a system of social networks that will support them. If you can't have that, if you're cut off from that, you've got a problem. I'm going to give you another example because it's another one that was really a wake-up call to me. Yeah. I was doing work in Wisconsin with uh, people who were in Head Start, um, who had children in the Head Start program, which is in the United States. It's a program, a preschool program for poor families that where their kids can get a quote-unquote Head Start. And I didn't do this research, but the client that I was working for had done this research. They had spoken to Head Start parents about how many people those parents knew who had jobs, who were employed mm. in the system, right? So these are these are parent these are low-income parents, low-income children. The answer was none. Think about that for a minute. Whoa. If those parents didn't know anyone who had a job. How exactly would you expect them to be able to integrate into the mainstream economy? I'm How exactly was that supposed to happen? Yeah. I mean, think about that. Think about the way you get jobs, the way I get jobs, the way anybody who's part of the mainstream economy gets jobs. You get them because you know people. Mm. If you know no one, what are the odds? Pretty bloody small. Yeah. that you will ever break out of quote-unquote poverty and this was in Wisconsin so this is that was in Wisconsin yeah. wow I mean we're not again we're not talking about about you know here about third world countries we're talking here yeah, about yeah. I think I think you know this is this is just sort of a universally true phenomenon that poverty yeah. is about isolation yeah yeah um, and being cut off yeah uh, and then, so it, it's interesting. How do these? How does it happen that these people become cut off in 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 that way? Um, is it just a factor of time and develop development in one area and lack of development and resources put into another area, and um, people get left behind? Um, what typically do you see as the cause for for that kind of? That kind That's of, it. It's a great question, Josh, and I don't know that I have any kind of tremendously insightful answer to that, other mm -hmm. than I think there are many factors at play. Mm -hmm. So I think for some of these people, some of them were probably immigrants who had language barriers, right, and who didn't have, weren't coming into a community where they had lots of relationships. And it was no one's job to help them establish relationships because we don't have anyone in that, whose job that is, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you can go food stamps, but that doesn't help you get relationships, right? You can get a rental subsidy, but that doesn't help you develop relationships. Yeah. Um, so that's one piece. You know, the other piece is people who are facing racism, right? So they don't, they have a hard time reaching out to people who are better off than they are because race is a barrier. Because the people who are better off than they are aren't comfortable interacting with them, right? Um, you know, you, you have generational poverty where folks don't, literally don't know how to go about finding a job because nobody's ever modeled that for them. They haven't been in households where people had jobs and so they don't have that, right? And it's got nothing to do with folks' underlying capacity to contribute to the economy. It's got a whole lot to do with the way we've structured our systems of quote-unquote help and assistance so that they're actually not helpful yeah. much of the time.
And in yeah. fact, you know, sometimes they're the opposite of helpful, right? Um, yeah. And then, of course, we and then you know we're bizarrely punitive. So if you don't, you know, if you don't have a job, then you can't get support. So you, it's kind of like <laughs> yeah. we have programs like that as well. But if you make too much money, then you can't. Get it's just it, the whole thing is just nuts, really. Um, and it and it's in part nuts because it's based on money, and it's not about money. Money is only one of eight forms of wealth. Yeah, yeah. So I bet, bet, perhaps that's a good time to just, just explain the other seven forms and, and, and what they are. Sure. So I want to just back up a second before I do that and just say that the, the purpose kind of behind the wealth creation framework is to give folks a way to think about how an economy could work that was not exploited. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the, the reality is that the economy that we have and the economy that we've developed is based on exploitation. It's exploitation of the natural resources. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have pollution, right? Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have global climate change. Mm -hmm. It's exploitation of people. We see that all the time. It's exploitation of social relationships where people use each other and lie to each other and that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's exploitation of built resources where we build infrastructure, but we don't maintain it which is why, you know, in this country, we have a disaster with roads and bridges and, you know, and inter we can't seem to get internet to happen for most people or not for many people anyway. Um, so the idea of a sustainable world and the idea of exploitation can't be held in the same breath. We cannot exploit our way to sustainability. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. Yeah. And yet all we know how to do to maintain our economy essentially is, is how to exploit. So the wealth creation framework is designed to give us a framework, not a cookie cutter, not a silver bullet, but a framework in which to think about how to remake our economy in a, based on human relationships into something that is fundamentally not exploited. That's the, that's the overall, and, and in fact, to be able to meet our needs as, as individuals and as societies and communities without having to rob Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's it. And, right? We, we don't know how to do that yet, and in that sense, this is aspirational. But we can do a whole lot better than we're doing now. And if we don't focus on learning how to do it, my fear is we're not going to ever achieve anything close to sustainability. Um, and the world, see the world becoming scarier and scarier in many ways. Um, it, it's, it seems all the, all the more important to me that we focus on solving these problems and not just getting scared. Right? Um, so onto the forms of wealth, but I thought that was a useful, perhaps yeah. a useful context uh, for folks. Yeah, So there are eight forms of wealth. The first three that I'm going to talk about are foundational. That is to say, if you have a community or a region without reasonably strong stocks of the first three, investing in the other five isn't going to matter. So just think about that as I tell you what they are. First one is intellectual capital. So intellectual capital is essentially creativity and ideas. The ability to find things and new ways of thinking. Right? And 
each form of capital has a way in which it way or ways in which you see it um and one of the ways you see intellectual <coughs> capital excuse me is through patents people who are clever and have good ideas they file and they get a patent on their ideas and we'll come back to that in just a minute that's not the only way we also and 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 so there are things you there 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 are results of it but there are also ways of investing in it there are many ways of investing in intellectual capital when you invest in the arts when you invest in research and development right you're essentially investing in intellectual capital the second one is individual capital now they both start with an i but they're two different things individual capital is the health and education of individuals right so it's both your physical well-being so you know you, you haven't been feeling well but when you're not feeling well you can't be an effective contributor to the mainstream economy because you're sick right so health is a really important part of being able to contribute and the other is you need some set of skills you need some thing that you're able to do right and so that is individual capital the, the the ability to do and the ability to be healthy enough to do it that resides with the individual now of course there's you know public health and and educational infrastructure and all kinds of things outside the individual that can contribute to that that we need to invest in in order to ultimately arrive at individual capital but but we call it individual because it's it's it it, it, it the way it manifests is through the individual it's the individual being able to be a contributor that we're that we're interested in um the third form of capital without which none of the others make any sense is social capital and social capital is the network of trust that people have with the people around them and maybe the people who are even at a distance from them but with whom they have a relationship you also have to invest in social capital as anybody who's been in a relationship knows if you just take that relationship for granted and don't spend time uh don't invest your time and your energy and your caring in the person you're in relationship with that relationship will dissolve relationships don't just float along if you don't invest in them so every form of capital requires investment in order to maintain it and grow it none of them are self-sustaining just because right so if you have intellectual capital new ideas and ways of thinking well, the health of the skills to do something with that intellectual capital and you have social capital the networks that let you actually bring it to scale then you can make progress yeah. but if you don't have any of those things then throwing money at it isn't going to get you anywhere mm. it's just not and it doesn't and there are the, the world is little examples of this right um and you know develop and having access to natural resources isn't going to help you it's those three pieces that are foundational to real development and real progress um and and just understanding that if we would just understand that that would already be a big step in the right direction yeah um so the other five forms oh well, let me just go back for a minute to the patent question so the thing about patents is the vast majority of them never see the light of day there's never anything done with them people come up with clever ideas in their garage they get it patented and then that's it mm -hmm. why is that it's because they have the intellectual capital but they don't have the individual capital to know how to manufacture it and get it to scale and they don't have the networks that are going to help them do that Absolutely. they don't have those yeah. connections yeah also uh patents right. are inherently so again, it, they're inherently expensive aren't they to 
to acquire in the first place. Yeah, it costs you something to acquire them in the first place, true, but 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 even for the people who can pass that barrier, yeah. there are thousands and thousands and thousands of patents that never go anywhere. Yeah, right? yeah. It's very interesting. Mm. Um, because I think that we don't we don't give ourselves credit or recognize some of, sometimes how creative a species we really are, mm. right? And how many problems we actually could solve if we you know, if we if the pieces came together the right way. Yeah. Um, so the other forms of wealth, the next form, a next form is natural capital. And natural capital is all of the renewable, non-renewable resources and the ecosystem services that the natural world provides us with. Um, and essentially, you can invest in it, you can destroy it. You know, if you invest well in it, it gives you more. If you destroy it, you're destroyed by it. I mean, you know, that's how that works. What, what, um, what would be some examples of, of, of this? So if you allow your source of water to mm -hmm. get polluted, mm -hmm. it will cause people to get sick. Yeah. You know, so, so it, once water is polluted, it has all kinds of other knock-on effects on other forms of wealth that are negative. Yeah. You can't grow things effectively in it. Fish can't survive it. People get sick from it. it you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, every form of capital, whatever, requires continuous investment to stay healthy. If it's not healthy, so for example, if you have a wetland that's been polluted and therefore can't function the way a wetland would function, that's not wealth. That's a depreciated asset. Wealth is when the stock of the thing we're talking about, whether it's natural resources or social resources or whatever, is healthy and functioning properly. Then it's wealth. But once it's been tinkered with, once it's been once it's been made less than healthy, it's no longer wealth. It's something that requires additional investment to bring back to the point where it actually would be a form of wealth. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's natural capital. Uh, then we have built capital. Built capital is all the things that people are capable of creating and putting on the planet. So roads, bridges, cars, computers, you know, iPhones, you name it, all that stuff is built. built. Agricultural systems, in fact, are built capital, right? They're a way of, of manipulating what we, were, what we were given. So tractors and, you know, irrigation systems and all that's built capital. Um, and build capital too, right? It, 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 you, it can be wealth, that is, can, let's say it can be well-maintained and functional, or it can be a depreciated asset, right? It can be a bridge that's about to fall down. Um, that's, not, that's not wealth. That requires investment to bring it back to the point where it's, where it's healthy and, can, and can, make, it can do its part, can contribute what it was meant to do. Um, the next form of wealth is political capital. Political capital is really interesting because it's based on social capital. You can't have healthy political capital without healthy social capital. That is to say, without diverse, strong networks um, and and uh, you know heterogeneous networks of people with different interests. Yeah. So political capital is the ability to influence resource allocation decisions. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily need to be through Congress, you know, through Parliament. It can be at the corporate level, it can be at the individual level, it can be at the household level, it can be at the community level, but you know you have political capital 
when you can influence the way someone allocates their resources, someone or something. And if you can't influence that, right, then you don't have political capital. <clears throat> and the way you get political capital is again by having really diverse and strong social capital. So yeah. great examples, right? Uh, what I'm trying to think how this went now. At one point, there was a group in New York State in oh Tug Hill, the Tug Hill region of New York State, which is uh, kind of a, a the wilderness next to the Adirondack Wilderness, and so the very rural area. And there was there was a law, and I'm I'm not going to remember the specifics, but uh, there was a law that had something to do with changing the way forests were managed, mm-hmm. and it was something that was going to be bad for lots of people. It was going to be bad for communities. It was going to be bad for loggers. It was going to be bad for for paper mills. It was going to be you know it was going to yeah. be bad for teachers because you know, change the tax base, etc. If any one of those groups had gone to Albany, which is the capital of New York State, and said it's going to be bad for me, I don't want it, nobody would have listened to that. But when they all went <laughs> together, yeah. locked arms went to the state house and said excuse me but yeah you may not realize this but you yeah. Know, yeah this is bad for all of us yeah right then yeah. they got hurt the, so, the, so that's that's what i mean but there seems to be so many examples of of that, that political capital especially in recent times exactly. it's it's incredibly prevalent and and you can have it or not have it you can build it yeah. very intentionally and in fact insights of this work for many of the people on the ground was, oh my, we don't have any, let's build some. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah. it had never occurred to them that they could intentionally and deliberately do that. Yeah. Once they understood what the obstacles were they wanted to change, right? And I, I can imagine um, quite, quite often in groups that might be the last thing thought about um, uh, as, a, as a way to improve 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 the community i can imagine it's it might feel like an uphill task um so you veer to other forms probably before that one um yeah yeah it's very interesting the things that we take for granted as being givens yeah like oh it's just a given right yeah. they're not going to change this is yeah. never going to change yeah um, and nothing's a given you know if if you if you think about it and put the right pieces in place it's all changeable it's all stuff that we managed to create yeah and we can change you know, it, it, and and we often it's often our own assumptions about how the world works that gets that get in our way mm. and part of what the wealth creation framework is about is getting people to test those assumptions and to say oh it's not true that those corporations are all evil yeah. <laughs> we actually can talk to them and they will be willing to work with us huh who knew right um and you know and again to not not to be naive there are evil evil people there are evil companies it's you know that exists in the world too but it is not all evil yeah um and and you know more of it is malleable than than i think we think is the case absolutely so that brings us to cultural capital yeah um cultural capital i think of as sort of the soup that everything else swims in because it's really the way in every place in the world the 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 forms of the other the other forms of capital are defined in different ways right mm-hmm. so what constitutes important built capital is different in a rural area than in an urban area it's different in a you know in africa than it is in vermont right 
but in different in different parts of Africa and different in your town than the next yeah. person's town. That's the cultural aspect, right? The culture shapes it. Um, but the other part of culture that's really important is there are behavioral norms that are culturally established. So who talks to who, um, you know, who's considered on, you know, in the in-group, who's considered in the out-group, who, you know, who's considered trustworthy and who isn't. And what we found is that in some cases, culture is a detriment, not an asset to an area. And that they actually have to change their culture in order to make progress. They have to undo whatever the stigmas are that are keeping people apart, whatever the sense is that we can't possibly work with these people. That has to right. be put to rest before they can they can move forward. So, it, it, so would that would those be kind of those like stagnant traditions, maybe, and like you're saying, people not allowing people to communicate with certain people. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, traditions are huge assets, right? So if you yeah. are, for example, an immigrant community and you have a particular way of celebrating something and it's really, you know, fascinating to other people and that, you know, that could be an asset that you could build on and a contribution you could make to the mainstream economy. But if your tradition is, you know, uh, you know, we don't let black people drink from this fountain, not mm. so much, right? Yeah. That's not going to help you move forward. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm just, uh, it, it, or we don't, we don't share information, right? Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite things that I see a lot, not, not favoritizing good, but favoritizing easy to pick out. There are so many groups out there that will say, we've had the same leaders forever. We can't get anyone new involved. Right. And we're all getting burnt out. And my experience is nine times out of 10, almost 10 times out of 10, if I sit down with those groups, and I watch them interact with new people when they attempt to get involved, mm. it becomes very clear why no one new gets involved. Mm. Because whether or not they're conscious of it, what they're doing is saying, we don't want you. Yeah. This is ours, go away. So yeah. on the one hand, all their behavior is saying, we don't want you. And on the other side of their mouth, they're going, but, but no one's coming to get involved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they they've really and that's a cultural it. thing. Yeah, you know, and and you can you can I mean, and I, I have, and we have in our work, we've held up that mirror to people and said, okay, so you're saying this, we just sat in on this meeting, this is what we, this is what you did, mm. you know, and get them to acknowledge that yes, this is what we did, and this is what we said. Now, <laughs> you know, mm. what would have to change? <laughs> yeah, you know, and and but but if you don't. It, we have we are amazingly good at compartmentalizing as human beings and at not seeing the connections and yeah. so unless there's somebody there to say uh, excuse me but you know there's this and there's this and you've just created your own problem you know mm. um what do we need to do so that you can get out of your own way folks just don't see it yeah most of the time you know? yeah um anyway so that brings us to the last form of wealth which is financial and here's what's important about that financial wealth is not income if it's financial wealth it's the resources to the near financial resources you have at your disposal that are discretionary for investment in the other forms of wealth right okay right do you have what you need to invest in your own health to invest in your own education to invest in your social networks to invest in the built capital you, you know you need in your community needs 
Yeah. That's the question, right? And you can work, you can earn income from now and forever and never accumulate wealth as mm. many, many millions and millions of people do. Um, and our systems are not set up to promote accumulate wealth. They're set up to exploit people so that they feel that they have to continually be earning income, earning income, earning income, and never getting ahead. Yeah. You know, never yeah. getting a sense of security out of that. Yeah. Um, right. So, 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 it's not that financial wealth doesn't matter. It does matter. It's just that it's not the only form of wealth <laughs> that we need to have a sustainable society. We need all eight forms of wealth to exist and to be healthy and operative, right? Contributing in a positive way in order to have a chance at having a sustainable society. And, you know, whether it's eight or whether it's 10 or whether it's 12, I mean, there are other forms of wealth other people would throw into the bucket. It's fine. The reason we chose these eight is because they're measurable. Right. And, you know, when you get into things like spiritual wealth, it's a little harder to, a little harder to figure out how to measure. But you know, whether again, it matters not if you're talking yeah. about you know six or ten or twelve or whatever. It's 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 again, it's the concept. But these these eight we found to be create a very powerful context, both for people to assess what they have mm -hmm. and to understand how to build what they need. So so how how do how would a group or somebody measure that kind of political one that you mentioned? How is that measured? Well, it, it's measured in the context of a wealth creation value chain in, in mm -hmm. this framework. So mm -hmm. there basically are, are three components of this framework that are critical. One is wealth creation value chains, the other is measurement, <clears throat> and the third is systems chain, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that this is a systems-based idea. It's not, it's not doing a project. Yeah. Wealth creation is not a project, right? Um, so to get back to your question, so in the context of a value chain, which we should talk a little bit about at some point, what that yeah. is, if you find that there is an obstacle in your way, so we need, we're trying to put together an agricultural value chain that, that gets goods from the producers to the consumers. And one thing we don't have is any way to transport the goods from the farm to the warehouse. And so somebody needs to reallocate resources to make that happen. And when you develop your, your value chain, you may find out, for example, that there is already a company that goes to every farm, but it's never been their business to transport produce, whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, what would it take to come with that company and figure out how to get resources allocated so that at the same time they're doing whatever it is they do anyway, they can be performing this other critical function for the value chain. Mm. Once you begin to understand what the possibilities are there, then you know who needs to come together to have the conversations with the owners of that company or the whoever it is needs to be talked to in that company mm. to see if you can get them to reallocate the resources. So it's so it's on a or or let me give you another this is another food example. Suppose that you're trying to help people be able to produce food products in their home that they can then sell commercially. Mm -hmm. But the state has a set of requirements about commercial kitchens 
that most people can't meet in their homes. Yeah. Right? What would it take to get the state to make a change? Right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that didn't, that wasn't unhealthy, but that allowed some activities to take place that, that are, that can't take place now. Yeah. So once you figure out what that involves, then you can also, again, who needs to come to the table to, so that the state will understand that this is something they need to respond to. Yeah. Right. It's not just one person who wants to make fudge in their kitchen and, you know, is going to get nowhere. Mm -hmm. Right. It's thousands of people and it's not just the kitchen people, it's the people that they're going to sell to and the people they're going to buy from and the people, you know, it's the whole, it's a whole bigger community. It goes back to, back to network um, again, isn't it? So back to networking, back to networking and relationships, but in relation to something that is concrete and actionable, yeah. right? none of this stuff in this framework, none of this is about abstraction. This is all about being very specific to mm. making specific value chains work. Yeah. So I feel like I should explain what a value chain is. You know? Yeah, let's let's go into that. <laughs> um, so first of all, let me start with supply chains because we've heard a lot through COVID and stuff about the disruption in supply chains. Yeah. What's a supply chain, right? So a supply chain is basically when a bunch of producers make something and push it out into the market. So whether it's food or whether it's electronics or whether it's cars or whether it's um you know violins it doesn't matter you're making something and you're putting it out there pushing it out there mostly the people in supply chains are not in relationship with everyone in their chain at best they're in relationship with the person who supplies them with their raw materials mm -hmm. and the person who buys their product mm -hmm. right so say you know say you're a violin maker right you, you would be in touch with the person that you, you get your wood from and you would be in touch with the wholesaler perhaps who you sell your your instrument to yeah something like that but you're not in you know unless you're very small scale you're not in touch with the end consumer you're not in touch with the person who's actually going to own and play your instrument right nor are you in touch with the person who gathers the hair for the bows mm. right because those people don't you don't do business with them right you do business you're only in touch with the the immediate people who supply you and the immediate people that you sell to typically right so that's a supply chain and the actual definition of a value chain is essentially a chain of production where value is added to the product at every stage. So you start with the, you know, the raw horsehair. I'm just, this is just a whatever example, but you, and, and then, you know, and then it gets refined and it goes into a bow and that adds value, you know, a violent bow, and then it goes into uh, a case and that adds value. And then it goes into the, you know, the end of the, the, the final yeah. super chain. It's tested and blah, blah, blah. So each stage adds value to it. Um, and the, the, the value chain at the end of the day is to be profitable. That's mm -hmm. one along the chain, make enough money to stay in business. Yeah. Essentially. Right. Yeah. So wealth creation value chain is different in a wealth creation value chain. The question we're asking is yes, it's important that everyone in the chain make enough money to stay in business. That's, that's absolutely true. But the other question we're asking is in the process 
of the entire value chain from the horse with the hair to the person playing Carnegie Hall, right? Mm. And people listening to it. How much wealth of these eight different kinds has been created at each stage? Mm. How much has been invested in? In other words, because you have to invest in it to create it or to grow it. And, um, and, and is that investment coming to the people who need it the most? Yeah. Uh, how have we done that? And have we done it in such a way that we're investing in as many forms as possible without undermining some to invest in others? Right. So that's the that's the uh, exploitation exploitation part. Remove trying to remove that. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. That's the exploitation problem. Because that's what we know how to do. And the reason it's important to measure is precisely so that we can see if at the end of the day, the world works the way we thought it worked, or it doesn't. And despite our best efforts, we're actually exploiting one form of wealth to create another. Because if that's what we're doing, we need to find a different way to do it. We need to go yeah. back to the drawing board and find another way, right? But we won't know if we're not looking. Right. In, in, in conventional economics, um, we talk about externalities, the external costs that nobody looks looks at, you know, that the companies, you know, companies use water to create their product and the water's polluted, but nobody cares because that's external, right? That's not that's not built into the price of the product, right? But it's not external. Yeah. You know, it creates all cost. these knock on problems for society, right? Cost, so so this framework is about not letting anything become external, forcing mm -hmm. us to pay attention so that we can see where the issues are that need to be addressed and we can get clever about how to address them instead of just pretending they don't exist. Mm. Have you got any examples where you've managed to get these value chains or supply chains to kind of sit down with each of the players and kind of uh, um, map out where things are going right or, or wrong? And, um, yeah. Yeah. In fact, we have, and the, the reason I chose the experiment that we did was on the ground for eight years. And in that eight years, we had multiple value chains actually start and succeed and have measure, you know, make measurable progress. And that's okay. why it was worth writing a book. I mean, otherwise it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been anything to write about. So I'm going to tell you one story because it's, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty amazing one. And it's in the housing sector. And we know, mm. at least in this country, I don't know about where you are, but here housing is a huge, we have a huge housing crisis. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and um, so this group is called FAHI, and they're in uh, the, the headquarters are in Kentucky, but they work pretty broadly in multiple states now, like in 12 or 14 states or something. Um, so they were they started as a network of nonprofit housing builders, housing suppliers. And so their work was dependent primarily on grants, mm -hmm. right? P people had to get money from the government or other philanthropic organizations that would say, okay, you have enough money to build 12 houses or whatever it is. And then they would go and they would do it. And these were homes for low income people, to, to be clear. Uh, when they were introduced to the wealth creation framework, they took a step back and said, well, wait a minute. What would it take? What would a value chain look like mm. that produced green housing for low income people? how many components would it have and how would it 
And the first thing they did is go out and talk to some of their prospective homeowners because all this work starts on the demand side. And what they heard very quickly was, we could care less about whether or not our housing is green. We want our housing to be energy efficient because that's what costs us money. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> right. So get over yourself, you know, yeah. and redefine what it is you're doing. So they said, okay, so we're not talking about a green affordable housing chain. We're talking about an energy efficient affordable housing chain. Okay. What would that look like? They did a bunch of research and they realized that nobody really knew. Nobody knew the most cost effective way to build an energy efficient house. Hmm. So they did the research. They got their builders and they got some people from the university and they did they did their own hands-on research. And one of that what they discovered, interestingly enough, is that the single most important ingredient is caulk. The stuff that you put around your doors and your windows to seal to keep the right, air out. Right, right. If you use right, if you use poor quality caulk, you don't end up with an energy efficient home. Mm-hmm. It's a waste. Mm-hmm. Using high quality caulk makes an enormous difference in the results you get. And that's where the that's where the biggest payback is. Not from fancy windows, not from fancy doors, not from right, it's from not from not, okay, so not not from insulation, it's it's making sure air or cold air is not or warm air, sorry, it's not escaping through the Yeah, I mean the, the other again, not to say the other stuff doesn't matter. You need yeah. that stuff. But yeah. but dollar for dollar mm-hmm. the the payback is is around the clock that nobody had thought of, right? Mm, yeah. So they had a model then for how to build an energy efficient house that was affordable, right? So then the question was, how do you finance this thing? Because it costs a little bit more to build well. And if the appraisers who appraise the real estate don't appraise it for being worth more than a non-energy efficient house, then the banks won't lend the money and then the prospective homeowners can't do it. Mm-hmm. They can't afford it, right? So they went to the appraisal association and said, we have this problem, you know, we, we're, we're trying to figure out. And the, the, the head of the appraiser association said, oh my God, we can fix this. This is crazy. We're leaving millions and millions of million dollars on the table because this is, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to appraise a non-energy efficient home and an energy efficient home at the same dollar value. Yeah, yeah. We need to know that, first of all, you can test to make sure it's an energy efficient home, that we know the difference that there are objective data, which there were, and they, there were many pieces to this value chain. So a piece was developing a training structure and a testing structure and all kinds of stuff so that you could be sure that you were you know, getting what you paid for. Mm. Um, but then the appraiser worked with them to figure out how to transform the training that appraisers were getting because they were just going by what they had been trained to do. Nobody had trained them about how you assess an energy efficient home any differently than any other. So they weren't doing it any differently. Well, what a surprise, right? So they changed the training. They offered the training. Part of what happened was that it turned out there was a myth in the industry. And the myth in the industry was that, that builders could not talk to appraisers and vice versa. 
Okay. So the appraisers weren't in thought that they weren't allowed to find out from the builder anything about how the house was actually constructed. Turns out that wasn't true. It was a myth. Mm. It had been perpetrated for decades. So that, that that goes to the cultural aspect and the um, yeah, oh, there's the, the culture in there or tradition in there. That kind of exactly. myth. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And so really interesting. So they reach it. So so to not drag this on too far, but they retrained the appraisers. Mm. The appraisers went out and were able to show that there was like an eight thousand dollar difference in the value of the home. You know, two comparable structures, one energy efficient, one not. The bank then was able to lend that money, willing to lend that extra money because they had the appraisal's, appraiser's assurance that it was worth it. Mm -hmm. The family not only got energy efficient, a more energy efficient home, they got more wealth, right? Because the home was worth more than a, an equivalent home that wasn't energy efficient. The money that the banks lent was more than sufficient to pay for the energy efficient upgrades. And the next step was to have the banks understand that those and, and to have the federal government, which which underwrites a lot of the mortgages in our country, understand that those mortgages could then be bundled and sold on the secondary market. Mm. So suddenly what happens is that you go from an organization, remember I said when we started, when this organization started before wealth, they, they applied the wealth creation framework, they were a group of nonprofit builders dependent on grants. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, they're a bunch of market-driven builders who get their money from the market yeah. to build in response to actual demand. Yeah. at something much closer to scale than they were ever going to get when they could build 12 houses a year and you know 20 there based on whatever grant they got that year Incredible. yeah literally it, it it touches on all those kind of points you mentioned yeah earlier it is, yeah that's really incredible and, and the key thing about this example and, and really all the examples that needs to be said is that they all depend on having what we call a value chain coordinator Mm -hmm. which is not a person, it's an organization with the capacity to connect the dots. So go back to our conversation about the Wisconsin Head Start people. It was no one's job, right? Mm. To make sure they could actually relate to people in their communities who were employed. So it's no one's job in our economy to build wealth creation value chains. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yet, from my perspective and from this framework's perspective, it's a it's the wealth creation value chains that are the building blocks of the economy, whether we recognize them or not. Yeah. And it's not individual businesses. Notice that during COVID, we didn't hear all this news about individual businesses. We mm. all heard all this news about value, about supply chains. Mm. The supply chains are disrupted, right? Why? Yeah. Because those chains are the building blocks of our economy. They're what really matter, not the individual businesses. Yeah. Right? And so if we had people trained to recognize the potential for and then create and develop and incubate wealth, create real wealth creation value chains in every sector of the economy and in every region, mm. we would transform the way we operate. Absolutely. And so is that something you are 
lobbying for or trying to um, uh, bring into the wider society a bit more? How are you trying to expand this this framework and this system? So, um, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, and I put together some resources just to, to mention to you so you would know that they're out there. Mm. Um, the uh, National Association of Development Organizations, NATO, in the mm -hmm. United States has a wealth works community at Google Groups, which includes people all around the country who are using this framework who get together on a regular basis and talk about it, share ideas and stuff like that. There's also a, uh, a page at, at the Aspen Institute that is www.wealthworks.org where you can you can see videos and, and hear stories and get training materials and get in touch with some of the trainers that have done this work and you know, trained other people in this work. One of the trainers is Melissa Levy at an organization called Community Roots. There are hubs around the country that are um, that are bringing this work forward. Mm. And uh, she, Melissa was the my senior associate for a number of years at Yellowwood. And then when I stepped down to and kind of uh, started to retire, she started her own business, Community Roots. So she's the, the hub for the Northeast and is able to provide training. And then uh, there is, uh, there are additional resources at the Yellowwood website, which is still up and that's www.yellowwood.org. And so if you go there, there are lots of wealth creation related resources. Uh, and then there's a book that a colleague and I wrote a training manual for action aid which is an international development organization, and it's called Gender-Sensitive Gender Access to Markets. Mm. And it's based on the WealthWorks framework. So it's in use in about 16 countries around the world, was the last I heard. Um, so, um... you know, there, and I know, I mean, I, the, the, there's a, a grant that just recently went out in the US to 12 different parts of the country working on food systems. And I just mm. heard a week or so ago that three of the recipients of that money want to use the WealthWorks framework um, going forward. So, and hopefully others will decide that that's also a good idea for them, we'll see. But um, there, there is, the work continues, right? Yeah, yeah. And that, I think that training manual you just mentioned is really interesting because I was gonna ask if one, there were kind of advisors that you just mentioned that could be dropped into to organizations or communities. <laughs> but if there is a, yeah, a, if, a if, if, the, if there is a training manual that can be followed and adopted, then that's it obviously helps to reach even further um, than having physical yeah. presence. Yeah. Yeah, we did, we developed, and so there's the, there's the, the gender sensitive training manual, but there's also at the wealthworks.org page, there's a bunch of training material there as well that was developed for the US. So as part of our work with Ford, we developed, a, I think it was a three or four day training for um, WealthWorks value chain coordinators. And we also developed training for coaches. So that's the other piece of this work that's important is that this is a really different way of thinking about the world than most mm. people have encountered. And it's very difficult to grasp it all at once. And when you're in the middle of it, it can be really difficult to see what you're supposed to do next. And so we found that it's very helpful to have coaches. Mm. 
So if you get a value chain who wants to develop a value chain, that person needs somebody to talk to, just to say, I've tried this, this is working, this isn't working, what do I do next? Because what we all tend to do, you know, me too, it's just not a value judgment. What we all tend to do is to, is to first of all, stay in our comfort zones if we can. Yeah. Yeah. And this work is all about getting out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And then we all tend to try the things that have worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to do something different, that's usually not what you want to do. And so it takes somebody from the outside to say, okay, you're doing this thing over here. It's not going to get you where you want to go. I suggest you try that, mm. right? Tell me, you know, call me up next week and let me know how that went. Mm. Yeah. Right. But I can really see, because obviously your book is focused on kind of rural communities and thinking about agriculture, I can really see if there's a legislation change or, um, issues with, with weather and farmers are struggling to grow a particular type of crop that's grown in a, in a region or in an area and they need to pivot um, having a coordinator or advisor coming and kind of assess what they do have and ways and new ways in which they can work or or, or to to extract value um, that makes complete sense would there be a any kind of switch for people living in urban areas or is it just as, as you said that that follow that system but with a clear goal um, in mind so this framework applies equally well in urban areas there's nothing rural specific about it mm -hmm. it's really a regional framework it's really about you know part of the reason part of the idea for rural areas is to become connected to urban areas mm -hmm. in a much more intentional way because the urban areas are where the demand is by and large, right? Yeah. At scale. And so value, I should also say that, that wealth creation value chains only work if the demand side of the value chain is larger than any one firm can meet, yeah. right? Yeah. Because otherwise there's no incentive to be part of a value chain. Why would you do it if you do that if you could just do it on your own? Yeah. So, so the idea is to be able to tap into a fairly large, robust demand, large relative to whatever it is, whatever your producer nucleus looks like. Mm. Urban areas are interesting because there really are two functions, it seems to me, two, or two places that they can that they can really trap into this, both in terms of marginalized communities and urban mm. areas. Yeah. One is as producers, and that is to think about, you know, assess all their assets using the wealth matrix, figuring out what they've got to work with, where their strengths are and all that, because mm -hmm. they may not have you know, wealth in one area, but they may have a ton of wealth in, in other areas that they just have never acknowledged or recognized or really elevated. Mm -hmm. And then to figure out what sector that can be applied to or sectors, and then to get out of their neighborhood and go meet the demand side. Mm -hmm. Whoever the demand side is, right? And, and I don't mean, again, individuals. I don't mean that person who's gonna play the violin. I mean the wholesalers. Mm -hmm people who have to have their finger on the pulse of the guy who's going to actually play the violin mm -hmm. in order for them to survive, who know the market. What what doesn't, what again, the difference between, a, a, another different key difference between a supply chain and a, and a wealth creation value chain, is a supply chain is supply driven, hence the name supply chain, mm. right? We've got, got a bunch of lumber, we're going to ship it, <laughs> right? Mm, yeah. And yeah. A, a wealth creation is demand driven. Yeah. What exactly are you looking for? Mm. What is it that keeps you up at night, you buyer? Mm. Oh, I'm really worried that I can't get a consistent supply of two by fours, whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
and I haven't been able to sleep for three weeks because of this, this, and this, right, that are going on. Then it's the job of the value chain coordinator to work with all the businesses in the chain to figure out how to solve that guy's problem. Yeah. Because if you can figure out how to solve that guy's problem, they're going to want to do business with you. Mm. And they're going to want to do business with you over the long term if you continue to maintain that flexibility and that relationship where they can call you up next year and say, oh my God, the thing keeping me up now is whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah. At the, you know, disease or, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. How can we address, you know, how can you work with me to solve that problem? Yeah. Um, and, and this is where, I mean, your other question that I really loved on, that you had sent me was about technology. Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. This work, right? This is all about the how. Mm. It's not about the what, but I mean, yeah, what? We need housing. Yeah. Great. But how? Mm. How do we build housing? Do we build housing in ways that are wasteful and polluting and, you know, and isolating and blah, 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 or not, yeah. right? Or do we build housing in ways that are ecologically sound and, and, you know, environmentally giving as opposed to taking and that are, that teach people skills and that help people be able to maintain them over the long run and that create community and that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not the what, it's the how. Yeah. And yeah. technology is critical to the how. You know, it comes back to the cock, right? Who knew that that was the piece of technology, right? Yeah. yeah. That really matters. And now you can ask the question, so is that cock environmentally sustainable? Do we need to come up with mm. a new way of making high quality cock? You know, I mean, there's lots that flows from that. And you might, and that's where entrepreneurial opportunities arise in the value chain. Because now somebody can say, oh, well, it's nice that we know that about cock, but pack, but the cock that we're making is based on petroleum. Mm. That isn't gonna work. Yeah. Right. Let's yeah. come up with a cock solution that's better than that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think technology's got to a point now whereby if you don't have access to certain types of technology, you're c completely. Um, uh, cut off and, and left behind. So, um, yeah. bringing, bringing te technology to certain areas and communities is fundamental. I'm trying to find a way to, to do that. Um, I was going to ask you uh, yeah, about the rapid pace and improvement of technology leaving communities behind and how we kind of bridge that gap. Back. So here's, this is, I'm so glad you brought that up because this brings me to the second role that, that urban communities have, I think more than more than rural because of they have the scale, mm. is that they're, they're consumers. And so there's three kinds of demand, right? Mm -hmm. they, um, there's effective demand, ineffective demand, and nascent demand. So effective demand is when you have the money and you can just go out and buy something, mm -hmm. right? Ineffective demand is when you want it and need it and don't have the money for it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you know, urban consumers who want need, you know, computers and can't get them, yeah. they can't afford them. Um, and then nascent demand is when you don't know you need something, but when you have it, it changes your life. Yeah. So, you know, which one of us knew we needed an iPhone before we had one, right? So, urban consumers are overlooked often because they don't have very strong effective demand, mm -hmm. but they have a ton of ineffective Right, lots of things that they could use if they could afford them. Mm -hmm. So, in international development, more than in the U.S., 
There are companies that have been very creative about how to turn that kind of ineffective demand into effective demand. Buy, for example, instead of selling concrete that people need to build their homes out of trucks that are huge and that cost a ton and that are hard that you can't afford when you want to do a, a project, mm. making concrete available in small, affordable bags. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Making shampoo available in small, affordable packets. Right. Yeah. How do you do that with computers? How do you do that with computer services? Right. Yeah. What's the consumer end of that that marginalized urban communities could be part of? Because if you can show a producer that there's a market, mm. right, that ends up being just as just as I mean, not just as good, but but in terms of the the, the profit, whatever, but yeah. is a viable market, is a profitable market, mm. then it's really interesting that, to yeah. imagine what what can happen, right? That like like you're saying that that's your demand finder, isn't it? Um, and I think there's there's a case there with trying to scale down technology in the same way that they scale down shampoo or, or, or concrete. There's definitely um, um, a need for that. Um, or shared in some way, right? Yeah, Where you shared, have a, a yeah. hub and then spokes and or, I, you know, yeah. I mean, surely this is a problem we can solve. Yeah. You know, um, it, 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 but, but you need to see it in, I think you need to see it in economic terms. You know, this is an economic framework. It's not a social work framework, right? Yeah. It's a, it's not we're going to give people computers and that's going to solve the problem. That's not going to solve the problem. Any more than giving people money is going to solve the problem. It's yeah. not going to solve the problem. It, yeah. You need to change the whole system okay. to make it work so that they're so that when they have these technologies, they're then connected to the larger economy in productive ways. It's not just now you have the technologies and you can, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. play games or something, right? That, that you. That, there's the vision of the value chain goes full circle that it's not just you know the end is giving this technology mm. and have you have you ever worked with a group or community perhaps that are not not to say part of the same um organization but they have a shared problem or um uh thing they need to tackle so uh, for example there's cost of living crisis here in the uk and people are struggling to pay for food or their bills just because of inflation, prices, everything's gone up. Um, but they, they're working individuals, somebody might be a plumber or uh, working technology or whatever the case may be, but perhaps they live in proximity to each other or, or their friends or um, associates somehow. Of a group like that coming together and asking you how they can improve their situation um, um, and almost work collectively but individually as well because I can imagine obviously here in the, in the West everybody's got kind of their own goals and ideas that they, they want to achieve and succeed but they still got a network around them that they might want to build up at, at the same time. So it's that's an interesting question and I think what I want to say is that the the book that that just came out, the Progress mm. You Can See book, mm. that's very much about bringing together disparate and diverse groups of people mm. to, to articulate and understand their shared goals, yeah. and then understand how they, what they can each do to help make progress toward those goals. Mm. This framework, the wealth creation framework, I think, 
is better applied to a group that has something in common to start with, right? Whether it's like a group of farmers or a group of plumbers or a group of electricians or a group of teachers or a group of, right? Yeah. And they don't have to be neighbors necessarily, right? Um, Yeah. But uh, where they need to figure out who would benefit the value chain they're envisioning were successful. That's the other critical piece of this, right? Is that is that these value chains are designed to engender investment. And when people learn to think more broadly about who would benefit if what they're envisioning was successful, then their world changes. Mm. Yeah. Then it's no longer this pushing uphill. We did an interesting, we, we did a workshop on wealth creation in um, uh, Nepal. Mm-hmm. And one of the exercises we did had to do with uh, to show people the difference between demand, b- between a supply chain and demand-driven value chain. Mm. So we, at one point, we had we filled boxes up with newspaper, and we had them pushed. We had people at the far end of the room, like 50 feet away or something, on the demand side, sitting behind these crates, and then the, the people who with the, with the material that they wanted to bring to market were behind these boxes, and they pushed the boxes all the way man side and said to the buyers and said so here's what we've got you want it mm. and then the other illustration was there were ropes on the boxes and the demand side was pulling the boxes toward them because they knew they wanted it because the yeah. relationships had been right yeah yeah and i was like you know which side of this equation do you want to be on yeah yeah but if they don't know and, and you know another thing we learned about uh, from this work is that many of particularly of the larger companies it's not that they don't want to interact with marginalized communities it's that mm. they don't know how mm. and they don't have the personnel to do the translations for them the cultural and other translations mm-hmm. they don't know how to see the opportunities um yeah. and they don't know how to organize them. so if you can do that for them you know mm, yeah they they are willing to be allies they're willing to be you know partners and 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 they're willing even to not be so exploited right to not to put foist all the costs on you and they'll even invest in your ability to succeed yeah but you have to understand that they have their limitations right and so it's about putting those pieces together with goodwill right and not not going into it assuming that the other guy is only out to get you right yeah yeah that's it going in with good intention hopefully on both sides um yeah and so what i think you've touched on it in segments but what is your kind of hope for the future of this system and framework um oh my gosh i mean i hope that more people are exposed to it and that Mm. more people buy into it and really understand that it's it's viable it can work it's not like i said it's not a it's not a silver bullet it looks different every place that it's tried mm. as it should mm-hmm. um but if we can commit ourselves to figuring out how to meet our needs as a society and as a world without exploit exploitation and in, instead by building and and growing the forms of wealth that our lives depend on mm we really can make the world a better place and i think it really can be sustainable and i think there are so many opportunities that don't require a revolution you know that yeah. we can do this work you can do this work today 
wherever you are in any you can find opportunities to apply this framework and make it work mm. it doesn't require you know um it doesn't require a phd doesn't require the revolution to have already happened no mm. this is how in my mind this is how the revolution will happen you know one at a time showing that it's possible showing that it's you know th that people do support it they do want to live this way mm -hmm. and um you know and th and that there can be mutual essentially self interest are, are there any are there um are there any industries that you think um lend themselves uh, better to this this framework than others um, uh, or, or are there any that you'd like to go in and kind of tackle because you think it's, you, you could make a real difference I mean I think that I don't think there's any sector that would that, that you can't apply this to frankly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think there's tremendous opportunity in housing I think there's tremendous opportunity in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, really tremendous opportunity yeah yeah because we're facing new realities in both of those areas i yeah. mean you know at least at least i think in the uk but certainly in the us and we have an aging population we have a, a really skewed mm. distribution going on mm -hmm. and we're not going to be able to age the way this this generation my generation is not going to be able to age the way previous generations have it just isn't yeah possible. so how's that going to work yeah um we, we, we have that same same issue here and there's a a, a, a huge concern around the cost of, of of care and being able to care for the older generation um, um, especially yeah, like you said pe people are living longer and, and richer lives right, exactly but and when they're will. yeah but when they're when they're not and they do need care it's it's very difficult so um, yeah i think that, that, that's a big industry that needs to know it needs it needs massive change. It means the systems need to change. And I think what I love about this work is that it's at root it's really creative work. Mm. You know, it's it's wealth creation. The word create is right there. It's about being creative. Yeah. Right. It's about being able to, to envision something that isn't here now, and mm. then figuring out what it will take to get it to happen. Um, and and that's a lot of I'm going to go back to this one more time because it's so important. That's a lot about understanding in whose interest it is to see it happen. Yeah. And and when people begin to understand that they have an interest in it, they may not have thought they did it, but that they really do, mm. then it's the world can change around. I was just about to say, yeah, like you said, in whose interest, and then it becomes about uh, explaining or um, um, convincing somebody that it, that it is in their interest. Um, and again, like goes back to the social aspect and the network aspect and the political capital and the, uh, yeah, or, or yeah, and the, and the relational aspect, right? You have to take yeah. the time to talk. Yeah, I think you know one of the big insights was really understanding that that your value proposition comes from understanding what's keeping the other guy up. Mm. Yeah, if you can help them solve their pressing problems then you've got value. Mm. You know, if you're just one among many people beating their door down, trying to sell them the same stuff they're buying from 69 other places, you have no value proposition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
And so what, what does the future look like for you personally? What projects have you got coming up next? I know you've well, written a new book. And... Um, you know, I'm mostly retired. I'm not working on a regular basis, but I have been asked by a couple folks to do a couple things. So mm. one of these um, regional food system value chains asked me, the people who, are, who got the grant to run that, asked me if I would be an advisor to them, which I will spend some time doing. I'm happy to do that. They're great. Mm. Um, the Another group, another person in Canada, I did a book club, a wealth creation book club with a bunch of people from Canada. And one of them has implemented the framework and has been so successful that he got some money because he'd like me to also be an advisor for the mm. next stage of their work, um, which will be very fun. And um, let's see what else. Let's see anything else about this. No, I think that's mostly it at the moment um, that's around wealth creation work. I mean, I've said that I would be, you know, I'd be willing to do another book club if somebody wanted, you know, wanted to put that together. Mm. Um, and how do they, how do they work? How do those book clubs work? So people get the book and they read it and we do usually go over maybe two chapters or two or three chapters on a call. Mm. And so the way it works is I kind of do the, um, summarize the chapters. They have already read it. Mm-hmm. And then we talk and answer, I answer questions and, you know, um, they try to, they, they look at how to apply to the work they're doing and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think we, I think the one I did lasted maybe three months, four months, we had maybe three or four calls kind of once mm. a month. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that being kind of a, a good way for kind of the, the management and C-suite and companies to then begin to introduce that way of thinking into their, into their company. And right, because you need to have yeah. several people who get it. You can't have yeah. one person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's and I, a, you know, I would love other people to be able to do the book clubs too. There certainly are other people who are, you know, qualified to do them. Yeah. Um, so that and, you know, really that's, that's, I'm, I feel like I'm, I've, I put the book out, out there. I'm happy to try to, you know, be helpful to people, you know, like you in, in this way when I can. Um, mm. But I'm really counting on, you know, the, the amazing people in the world to, you know, pick it up and, and you know, and run with it. Um, yeah. And I know that people are, which is very encouraging for me. It's, it's great to, to know that that's actually happening. Uh, as I was saying, I think it's um, an incredible book. It, it was something I, I was searching for, and that, to be honest, there wasn't a huge amount of, of writing out there quite like it. Um, I don't. I I know you've got so many references in there, which is which is great because I can I can go through those as um, those as well. Um, but yeah, I just want to say, yeah, fantastic book, and thank you for taking the time to put it together. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the the new book you you've written as well that uh, has a slightly different focus? So, yeah, it's called Progress You Can See: Measuring for Social Change, and the work that went into that book actually predates the work that went into Wealth Creation. So, okay. that work started probably 35 six years ago um, when invited to be part of an Aspen Institute group learning cluster on rural community capacity building and um, 
And it was about trying to help people understand what it means to build capacity because funders, funders thought it was so soft and squishy they didn't want to fund it. Mm. So we thought if we could figure out a way to make it more concrete and measurable, they'd be more interested in funding it. Mm -hmm. So we came up with a compendium of measures and outcomes and blah, blah, blah. And then I kind of went home and said, yeah, this is really kind of useless. That what people need is a process whereby they can derive their own meaningful measures for whatever it is they're doing. Mm -hmm. They don't need an encyclopedia to go, you know, pluck things out of That's just dumb. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I created a process. It's called You Get What You Measure. And it's values-based and inclusive and, and in, in lets ordinary people do systems thinking together, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I had, Yellowwood had trademarked that process and, uh, and we would use it with clients you know, all the time, but that's where it sat. And I thought once I kind of stepped away from working full time, I thought, you know, I know this is a really powerful process. I've done it enough and seen what it does and had feedback on it. And I'm like, I, you know, I want to put it out in the world and I want to remove the trademark. I don't want it to be restricted. So I did. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the book is. The book is essentially, I used to offer three days of training here in Vermont. People would come from all over and it'd be classes of about six people. And I put them through three days of training, learning how to use the measure process. And we call them measurement guides. Mm. And then they could take the process and use it in their work. And so, uh, so the book essentially is a recreation of that training. Mm -hmm. And if you buy the book, you get access to the videos of my actually delivering that training back in 2012. Wow. Yeah. Um, because I had, I had a professional company come in and videotape that that training that particular year mm -hmm. um so that's my again and, and so the way the two books come together is the, the measurement process that you learn through uh, progress you can see is essentially the same measurement process mm. for the forms of wealth in wealth creation yeah no that's great and it's great that it comes with those kind of uh, visual training aids as well that's that's great I'm very curious to see if, if, if people are going to watch them and how that's going to work. It's, a, it's an interesting experiment. Yeah. yeah. And, and on the topic of books, are there any kind of books you'd recommend to people on, on this area of uh, wealth creation or value and, um, uh, and systems? You know, I think it's, I think, I think your experience is telling. There's just not a lot, not a lot mm -hmm. out there. Mm. Um, that's not theoretical, right? So yeah. there's a lot that's theoretical, mm -hmm. and there's a lot that's um, high tech, shall I say? I mean, it, it you know it 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 requires algorithms and programs and stuff, right? Yeah. And or it's all designed around financial wealth. So if you Google wealth creation, what you're going to find is tons of stuff on how to get rich. Yeah. Yeah. Financially. Um, you know, there's some work and it's referenced in the book around gen the genuine wealth index and inclusive wealth and stuff like that. But again, most of that stuff is reasonably theoretical. It was never really applied. Mm. What, the reason I think that this book is so important is because this is all application. This is all what actually happened with real people when they took these ideas yeah. and did them on the ground, right? Um, and where they got stuck. I mean, that's the other part, really important part of this is that is that 
And this is why the coach is so important is because you can start and, and think you know where you're going and then not know, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and somebody has to be there to say, okay, you're doing great up to here. Now, the kind of people you have to go talk to are not the people you're talking to because they're telling you nothing can change. The people you need to talk to, right, mm. are these people over there. Um, yeah. You know, don't don't take no for an answer. Don't, you know, don't just fall back into, well, it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. And it's like the, the example you gave of the housing, just kind of asking the question, we, we don't necessarily need green houses, we need uh, energy efficient houses. And right. that's, that's, that's it, isn't it? Getting to that root and asking the right questions and speaking to the right people. Right, and then listening. Yeah. And then really listening. Yeah. You know? And I mean, the fun part, one of the fun parts about watching this work unfold is that people inevitably end up both talking to and partnering with folks that they never thought they'd be in the same room with ever mm, yeah right yeah and when that starts to happen that's when i know they're making progress yeah you know there's there's a we didn't talk a lot about it but another one of the value chains um was an energy value chain not not housing but actual energy okay. and they ended up partnering with utility companies who had been their enemies because they were pro-environment and the utility companies were in the coal mining you know area right mm. And yet they found common ground around improving the energy efficiency of the customers of these utilities. Mm. And it was mind boggling, right? And when and one of the utility people actually came to a gathering that we held at one point, and I talked to him and I said, you know, what, what brought you here? You know, why, why are you here? And he said, well, these guys came to me and talked to me. And I said, what keeps me up at night is our customers are going bankrupt. And we're a co-op. They're also our members. It's not a good look for us yeah. to be dunning our members who are going bankrupt. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We need help. Yeah. Wow. And, it, it, you know, it was, and it unfolded from there. But again, unpredictable. And they never, had they not gotten over themselves enough to be willing to go talk to the utility companies and had the utility companies not gotten over themselves enough to be willing to open the door yeah. to people who literally were enemies. I mean, they had gone, you know, they had been fighting tooth and nail for years. That's um, it. it wouldn't have happened. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. I think, um, I think there's so much in here that can help individuals as well, actually, from actually just, taking stock of their own situation and looking at those eight forms of, of, wealth, of wealth and seeing where they are on an individual basis and then also um, as a larger network and, and group and maybe even also a, a, an organization specifically. Um, but I think the examples you've laid out in the, the framework is going to be really beneficial for people. So thank you for your time today, Shana. Thank you.